Love Letters Between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi Presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jolliffe If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it and subscribe to it. Episode 3 I Want to Talk Cat-Horse Again Chris and Don encouraged each other to have outside sexual relationships. After all, Chris had had dozens of boyfriends before meeting Don, and they both wanted Don to have the same romantic adventures. But the attention that they had long focused on one another was so intense that neither was really prepared for the seismic emotional shifts that would come about when some of this attention was directed elsewhere. The animal essence of their relationship relied on close and constant physical interaction, and especially on Chris's side, on being together from twilight to dawn. Chris found it really hard to spend nights alone. I've read through his mother's diaries, and she makes it clear that all through his childhood, he slept in the same room with his nanny or with his mother every night. At boarding school, there were at least four or five other boys in the room. He'd had his own bedroom at home only when his family settled in London, at the end of 1921, when he was already 17. Even then, when he stayed at his grandfather's house in Cheshire, he still shared a bedroom with his mother. By the end of 1962, Chris accepted that Don was absorbed in a new love affair with a man called Bill Bopp, who lived in an apartment in Hollywood and worked in admin at the Burroughs Corporation, a data processing company. In his diary, Chris admitted his jealousy, but worse, his fear that Don was slipping away from him. One night, when Don was away in Stanford getting ready for a show of his work there, Chris spent the night in their bed at home with a painter friend, Paul Warner. Paul Warner and Don sometimes painted together, Chris and Don both knew that Paul possessed exactly the qualities that might offer a real threat to Don's place in Chris's affections. In particular, the animal sensuality Chris so adored in Don. It was an act of revenge. If it was unconscious, it was pretty accurate. In March, Don drove to Phoenix, Arizona to make arrangements for another show of his work in mid-April, a show he later canceled. As soon as he pulled out of the driveway, Chris began this letter. Monday morning, March 11th, 1963, Santa Monica. You've just left, and oh dear, I feel so miserable at the complexity of everything and the difficulty I have in talking to you. I mean, I really understand so much, much more than I can express in conversation. There's your painting problem. Almost nothing I can do about that. I often feel you don't even want my sympathy, but just for me to get the hell out and leave you alone. That's perfectly all right. But it's among the many things we don't seem to be able to say to each other without hurt feelings on my side, irritation on yours. 
The irony of it is that you can help me with my writing problems very considerably. So the situation is one-sided. Then there's Bill. Only we could talk about that. I guess it's impossible, because you feel that I'm trying to own a relationship or sponsor it or whatever you say, just by talking about it. But all I really want you to know is that I do see why it has to be, and I'm glad about it. Much more than that, I really do accept it as part of our life together. But even if I say that much, it sounds sort of possessive, as though I was trying to make it into a mere colony of the Kitty Dobbin Empire. Anyhow, I won't pretend that I adore being alone those evenings. But that's my business. It has always been a weakness of mine, and one which I should get over. It's childishness, really. Something to do with the dark. Because during the daytime, I couldn't be happier by myself. Well, anyhow, that is connected with these involvements I create. And there, I have to admit, you are right. I am motivated, at least to some extent, by a queeny competitive bitchiness. I see now that the thing with Paul was really inexcusable. I simply cannot fathom how I can have been so thick-skinned. There again, if only we could talk. Like the evening before last, I had actually just stayed the night at the house where I'd been drinking, purely and simply because they didn't want me to drive back drunk. I couldn't tell you that, because telling you would have suggested that you minded. And that's the kind of minding we never talk of. We only either kid each other about it or get angry. Oh, I'm so saddened and depressed when I get a glimpse, as I do so clearly this morning, of the poker game we play so much of the time, watching each other's faces and listening to each other's voices for clues. And then you say, for example, Dobbin's in a strange mood, and then things start to get tense. And because I know this, I start play-acting to get them untense again, and that makes everything worse. And you are much the same. Although somehow or other you always seem franker than I am. Is that because you can afford to be? Am I scared of you? Yes, in a way. I really almost wish I could be more scared. How can I explain that? It's hard. But to try to get at what I mean. I was so happy the other day when you said that about Dobbin having been a jailer and now being a convict. I sort of wish that were true all of the time. Masochism? Oh, Mary, what do I care what it's called? I only know that it isn't a wrong thing for me to feel. Our relationship is really so very, very strange. No wonder it gives us trouble. I mean, I often feel that the animals are far more than just a nursery joke or cuteness. They exist. They are like Jung's myths. They express a kind of freedom and truth which we otherwise wouldn't have. I've written all this, and maybe having read this far, you will say, what an egomaniac. I have quite other problems, you will say, which have nothing to do with him. Yes, I know that. And again, if I say I would like to talk about them, you may reply that I am merely trying to get possession of them. I mean, basically, the feeling you have mentioned of fear. What is going to happen to you? Oh, sweetheart, I probably ought not to send this letter at all. Perhaps you feel nothing but sick of my interference. I don't forget how you said you had those feelings of sheer hatred when you were up at Stamford. Then again, I'm going to send the letter because the one thing I do want you to know is that I care. 
I really do ache with misery when the wires are crossed. But then I realize it is sheer egotism to talk about caring. Oh, shit, I feel I've somehow gotten something said, but I don't quite know what. I love you. See, in case I forgot to tell you, I suppose I shall have to go to the Hollow Crown with Cecil Beaton on Thursday night. When I read this, I recalled a note in Chris's diary of exactly what Don had said. Dub used to be my jailer. Now he's Kitty's convict. Don felt that he'd achieved the upper hand in the relationship. For one thing, he'd persuaded Chris to acknowledge his lover so he could be free to spend nights away from home whenever he liked. At last, he could carry on this and other relationships without lying and subterfuge. There'd been other big changes during 1962. Ever since he got home from London, Don had been saying he wanted to build a studio at the Adelaide Drive house. Finally, during June, July, and August 1962, contractors converted the garage. The new physical arrangement perfectly reflected what Don wanted with Chris. A separate space, entirely his own, within the domestic space that he and Chris had established together. He wanted love, security, and freedom. Chris thought the studio should be somewhere else, away from home, and he told Don this. I had also read about this conversation in his diary. Don wants to keep an eye on me, and I suspect that this isn't entirely a joke. He's afraid of leaving me too much alone. He doesn't want my independence. During this period, Chris was writing A Single Man. The main character, George, is based on himself. The novel opens just after George's younger lover has been killed in a car wreck. The fatal car wreck actually happened to a couple Chris knew. But in the real-life wreck, the younger man lost his much-loved and relied-on older companion. In his novel, Chris turned this around, exploring in his imagination what life for an older man would be like if he lost his younger lover. So much for Don. Chris killed him off altogether in his imagination. This was his way of mastering his situation. Don did not have the upper hand after all. Chris's separate space, his studio, was inside his head. He already had, and always had had, just what Don wanted. A private world within the domestic space he and Don had established together. He was entirely free there, in his imagination, and he was entirely secure. Don shared Chris's imaginative life as much as anyone else in Chris's life ever did, helping Chris with his writing even more than his school and university friend, Edward Upward, and eventually becoming his collaborator on scripts. But even to Don, the space inside Chris's head was unassailable. Wow. Try living alongside that, I thought. Try living alongside the barricaded mind of a writer, a fortress with its own internal spring water, its plentiful supply of food.
In April 1963, the animals parted. Chris went north to San Francisco. He lived in a borrowed house and gave some lectures at Berkeley while he worked on A Single Man. April 13, 1963, 2424 Jones Street, San Francisco, 11. Own sweet cat. Well, the drive took only 7 hours and 35 minutes, door to door. I did everything correctly, despite the fact that they don't mark the turn-off properly from the Sacramento Road. On the speedometer, it was 403 miles. The Volkswagen kept comfortably at 75 whenever required. It was a beautiful day, but last night it started to rain, and it's been drizzling on and off today. The house is overwhelmingly modern, and there are many gigantic abstracts, probably by Frank awful anyway. I have a lot of fun riding up and down in the elevator. This street goes straight down to Fisherman's Wharf with Alcatraz in the background. Quite a good view from the roof. Yesterday I saw Stanley Myron, who is much involved with a true unto death boy of 20 who won't leave him alone. Also there's Zigalita, also Bob Register in England, still faithful. Yes, poor Stanley is indeed quite a bore. Today I've been quite alone, just wandering around the streets and looking at the Chinese in the shops, which is fun for a while. I have resolved this time to learn the geography of this city properly. It will all have to be done on foot, because there's absolutely nowhere to park. I don't know if you recall, but Mason Wells sent me a couple of tickets for some theatre or other. I find I've lost them. They may just possibly be between the pages of the Forst's catalogue of hams and sausages, which I left behind in that metal tray where I keep letters to be answered on my desk. Would you look like a sweet love and send them to me if they're there? Miss my sweet kitty and hope so that his work will go well. We'll be thinking of him always and hoping he hasn't forgotten his tiresome but devoted old horse. Dub-dub. Don wrote back in mid-April saying he thought things were going better. But, in fact, they continued to be dark for a long time. Tuesday, April the 30th, 1963, Santa Monica. Dear horse, this is all the mail of any importance to date. I've weeded out all the obvious advertisements and stuff of that kind and paid all the bills. I'm sorry to be so long in getting this to you. I hope there's nothing that has been seriously delayed. I've not written before because I haven't had anything to tell you. I'm going through an awful time. The screws are on. I can't remember a more difficult time. I can't paint, I can't read, I can't relax. Or rather, I don't do any of these things. I can't even seem to think in any kind of reasonable, constructive manner. Something is terribly wrong. And not only do I not know what to do about it, I don't even know what it is that is wrong or why. Fits of doubt and gloom keep descending. I try to fight them off, but I seem to have fewer and fewer weapons. And yet, in spite of all this, there is somewhere the vague feeling that there is a point. If I can only find it. This experience must produce some result. I only hope it will be reassuring in some way. So far, not yet. I need you. Terribly, sometimes. It shocks me how much. I don't want to need you. I want to be able to rely on myself. I have so many years of bad habits, selfishness and weakness to overcome. I sometimes feel it's almost hopeless to try to change, but then I don't know what else to do. 
I don't have any other choice which is acceptable to me. It seems I must change. I don't like depressing you with all my woes. That's why I've not written. I don't want you to worry about me. I must do this alone. I must get through by myself. And I try hard to love you instead of just needing you. Your overwrought pussy. went to Santa Monica for Don's 29th birthday in May, but the meeting was a disaster. He bought a sapphire ring and presented it with a Hallmark card. On the outside of the envelope, he wrote, For dear Fluffcat on his birthday. Inside, he wrote, I dreamt of Kitty. I dreamt Dobbin died and someone said, Was he very beautiful? And Kitty said, No. Afterwards, he described the birthday presentation in his diary. May 18. Don shed tears, said he couldn't accept it. Our relationship is impossible for him. I am too possessive. He can't face the idea of having me around for another ten years or more, using up his life. I said I absolutely agree with him. If it won't work, it must stop. Now he's gone out. I cried a bit, then drank coffee, felt a lot better, and began figuring. Don should start by getting a studio away from this place, where he can stay whenever he wants to. Also, he should go to a psychiatrist. That was his idea. And we must start thinking about selling this house. Chris and Don did not sell their house. Chris lived there until the end of his life, and then he died there in 1986. As he was dying, Don painted his portrait again and again. Then Don painted his corpse. They crossed that last threshold together. Don's last drawings of Chris are among his greatest work, Art Defying Death. One morning, I was with Don in that very house in Chris's workroom, and we were going through some things that had belonged to Chris. Date books, address books, passports. He showed me the copies of Chris's books that Chris had given him. One was down there on a visit. I found an inscription inside. Let's put our faith in the animals. They have survived the humans and will survive. The inscription was dated February 14th, 1963, the animal's 10th anniversary, just before they split up. Of course, I thought, Don had given his copy to Tennessee Williams in New York in the winter of 1962. Chris gave him this copy to replace it. His art, the finest thing he had to offer, defying the death of the animals. And this particular book carried the message that his life with Don 
was no visit. It was the life he had been looking for and that suited him. The animals did survive. Despite the crisis in the spring of 1963, they were back living together in their house by June. By the end of September, Don felt less distressed and he was able to work a little in his new studio. Staying together, for them, depended on sometimes being apart. And each of them had to draw on resources outside the relationship. Chris's Hindu beliefs had been a center of his life since 1939. Recognizing this, Don asked to be initiated by Swami Prabhavananda not long after he got back from his year away in England and New York. On December 18, 1962, he was given a mantra and learned to meditate. After that, he and Chris often worshipped the Hollywood Temple together. On Christmas Eve 1963, Chris wrote from India. He had traveled by way of Japan to the Ramakrishna Monastery near Calcutta, with Swami Prabhavananda and a party of monks, nuns, and devotees from the Hollywood Temple. He was to speak at the 100th anniversary celebration of the birth of Vivekananda, the disciple of Ramakrishna who'd founded his monastery and brought Ramakrishna's teachings to America and Europe. While he was at the Ramakrishna Mat, Chris also witnessed the second and final vows of two American monks with whom he'd been friendly for a long time at the Hollywood Temple, Prima and Arab. He watched them renounce their identities, dying a symbolic personal death in order to be reborn as swamis, a path he'd seriously considered for himself in 1943 and 1944. This witnessing planted the imaginative seed for his ninth and final novel, A Meeting by the River. Christmas Eve, 1963, Bella Mat, West Bengal, India. Dobbin is thinking so much about his kitty on their first separated Xmas. Not that this could possibly be less like Xmas here. I am to read the Sermon on the Mount out aloud in the temple this evening, but that's just camp. The weather is perfect, not too hot, and the new guest house where I'm staying is a whole lot more comfortable than the one you and I stayed in. Swami Nikilananda of New York is here with four Western devotees who are like characters of E.M. Forsters. One of them is an Italian countess dressed as a Hindu nun, another a wealthy American inventor. I don't know whose character I am. I feel absolutely not here. No alcohol, not even any more librium, has left me with a vast appetite. Swami is marvellous. He's absolutely himself, and yet he fits in perfectly and blesses the faithful in droves. I take the dust of every Swami's feet, and all manner of people take the dust of mine, and I'm not even embarrassed. It is all a charade. And yet India is teeming all around us, and Calcutta is as filthy as ever, and that matters. It is horrific, and yet not altogether depressing, because much is being done about it. Prima says he will stay here and join in the work. Arab is literally sick with horror and will leave as soon as he can. 
I think of nothing but January 7, when I fly to Rome, followed by New York a couple of days later. Meanwhile, I shall faithfully yak about Vivekananda as contracted to the Parliament of Religions, the Women's College, the Vivekananda High School, etc., etc. In a daze, I observe how beautiful and curious and comic the life is here. I sit watching the boats on the Ganges. I read Willa Cather, but this is not my life and could never become my life. The only realities here for me are Swami, Prima, Arab, and Krishna, whom I have become much more intimate with since our day together in Tokyo, where he bought Jap cameras giggling like a schoolboy. I know this letter isn't making sense, because this place isn't making sense, though it will probably make a good story in retrospect. I'm not at all miserable or sick, only bored and lonely. I long to see you, my darling treasured kitty. Away from you, I can't talk. I don't feel this is my language or my world. I want to talk cat-horse again. Don't forget old days, dumb, doddering Dobbin. We'll send a cable in due course. All my love, sweetheart. From that, D. While Chris was in India, Don was in New York, arranging an autumn exhibition at a new venue, the Banfer Gallery. The animals met in Manhattan for a couple of weeks in the new year, 1964, and the rendezvous was a happy one this time. Don stayed on at the Hotel Chelsea when Chris returned to Santa Monica. In the meantime, they had agreed that Don would design the cover for a single man, Chris's masterpiece inspired by the fear of losing him. At the end of May, Don went abroad with a current love interest and another friend. They traveled in Egypt and Greece. Then Don went alone to Austria to see the Klimts and the Sheilas in Vienna. Chris explained in his diary on May 26th, This is Don's birthday present for his 30th birthday. He wanted to do it with my blessing. A sea change had come about between them. The relationship had been recast as father-son or guru-disciple. A lover who betrays is harder to forgive than a prodigal son who wanders and returns. The prodigal son receives unconditional love and is always welcomed home, whatever the emotional cost. Don, now in the role of a prodigal son instead of a betraying lover, really was free to wander and philander as he liked. He went back to New York for the opening of his show at the Banford Gallery in October. All the while, Chris stayed contentedly at home. He was assembling a retrospective volume of book reviews, essays, and unpublished stories that he titled Exhumations, and he was working on a film script of Marguerite Dura's novel, The Sailor from Gibraltar, for Tony Richardson. They spent Christmas together, but Don's second New York show was a success, and success led, as ever, to new interest in his work. He didn't stay home for long. Just before he left again to work in New York, at the beginning of 1965, Chris recorded in his diary a snatch of conversation. I told him that this short time together has been the best I have ever had with him. He said, Lately, I've been thinking that the animals haven't seen anything yet. They still haven't had their golden age. I said, they'd better hurry. 
The Animals, a selection from the book The Animals, love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it and subscribe to it. Join us for episode four, New Friends. The Animals podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenobi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House and Farrah Strauss and Giroud donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell and The Animals Podcast 2017. Thank mm-hmm. you.